Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Time to uh, look for some look at some stories from other parts of the planet. We are joined once again by Jonathan de Burka Butler. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you getting on? Not too bad. Now, uh, Quebec we're going to first and uh, a a controversy about making an oath to the king, which I suppose from that part of Canada, isn't that surprising? No, not really. Uh, They have always paddled their own political and cultural canoe in Quebec and uh, I suppose this is no different. I think like a lot of countries, um, when the Queen of England died there uh, earlier in the year, they sort of questioned what was the role of the monarchy in, in, you know, in the Commonwealth? And, you know, Barbados, a couple of months, had decided to get rid of them and turn it into a republic. And I think Jamaica is thinking of doing the same. And um, Quebec didn't want to, uh, you know, pass up the opportunity to do something independent themselves. So they had elections in October. So they had local elections, in, well, for the, for the uh, provincial legislature uh, to elect 125 MPs there. And 14 of the politicians who got elected refused to swear the oath, right? Now, 11 of them eventually backed down, but three others decided to hold out. And they knew that there was legislation being brought forward by the Premier there, Francois Legault. And Legault brought the legislation forward. And sure enough, this was passed last week. So this new provincial law amends the Canadian Constitution Act of 1867, and it adds a section exempting Quebec from the oath of allegiance to the king. So you can decide whether you want to swear the oath or if you want to leave it out. Um, now, it's not as clean cut as all of that. It's not just down to Quebec and they go off now on a solo run and that's the end of it. There is likely to be constitutional challenges to this. Um, and that can come from a number of, of different places, including from the from the uh, uh, Justin Trudeau there, um, who, of course, is the is the head of uh, Canadian um, uh, of Canada, effectively. Mm. Uh, why would he challenge it, though? Well, because it's, you know, it's a direct challenge to the ex- existing status quo, I suppose. Um, it's it throws up this discussion now again as to the relationship between Canada and the monarchy, right? And um, there was a survey that was conducted following the death of Queen Elizabeth II and, and half of Canadian respondents, or just over half, about 54%, said their country should sever its ties with the Crown. And it's no surprise that that particular sentiment is the strongest in Quebec with nearly 80% agreeing to that. So... Um, you know, I don't think Trudeau necessarily wants to sever those ties. I don't know what his personal view on it is, um, to be honest with you. But um, it would, you know, cause a bit of controversy, I imagine, and would, of course, perhaps clear a pathway for another independence referendum for Quebec, which they've held before and which mm. have been very close. Yeah, uh, that's probably what's underlying all of this, because I imagine probably were it not for the que- Quebec issue, it would be slightly less controversial if they were talking about tying uh, or, or uh, ending their ties to the British monarchy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not it's 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 so much more loaded than Jamaica or, or Barbados would be, uh, because as you're as you're alluding to it, it involves an independence movement, uh, which would break up the whole place and would be a bit of a disaster for Canada, I think. Right, uh, we'll move on uh, to their neighbours in the United States, specifically the town of Moscow in Idaho, and not to... Uh, I'm not trying to trivialise this at all because this is a terrible story, but it also sounds like a movie. Yeah, I think what stands out about this particular story is that it's 
now been going on for so long. Um, this particular town, Moscow, Idaho, is a student town. I think I think it's very close or, or is the, the town where the University of Idaho is. But anyway, a lot of students live there. Population is about 25,000. And um, early last month, or in the middle of last month, the 13th of November, four students were murdered, okay? And it was really gruesome. Um, uh, three women and two and one man, uh, both in their, all of them in, sorry, all of them in their early 20s, 20 and 21. And at this point, there is no suspect, okay? All we know is that somebody... Uh, murdered these people. There was no sign of of breaking or entering. Um, There are several ideas that people have, but nobody's been arrested. Uh, And they are short of leads. I mean, the the police are looking into information that some of the victim's friends had heard her speak of a stalker. There's also talk of uh, another student who had a knife on campus uh, early in September. Um, and then the police are looking for a white Hyundai and they want to talk to to the owner of that particular car. But apart from that, they know nothing. And what's so strange about this is that even though four people were murdered, there were six people in the house. So there was two people on the first floor who heard absolutely nothing while these mm-hmm. people were being stabbed, uh, essentially. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously enough people are very, very worried in this particular town and, and they're they're locking their doors and keeping them locked. And is there any evidence of any other, like was there sexual assault involved or anything like that? This is the other thing. The the county coroner, a woman by the name of Kathy Mabbott, has said there's no evidence of murder, suicide or of sexual assault whatsoever. Um, so they're really at a loss. And uh, as you can imagine, as I said, the residents of this small town are very, very worried. This is the first murder in this town in seven years. Uh, so the fact that it's a quadruple murder is uh, quite astonishing, really. Yeah, it is a fairly grim uh, and puzzling case. Right, Turkey we're going to go to uh, next. And uh, I suppose you could say this is further evidence of of, uh, perhaps Turkey becoming something of a one-party state. Yeah, it's. It, I couldn't end the year without having a look at something on Turkey um, and our, our good friend who pops up on this particular slot, uh, President Recep uh, Tayyip Erdogan. Um, and so uh, Erdogan seems to be at it again. So he's up for election for president next year. Uh, looks like he wants to go into his third uh, decade. That, that would, yeah, that would send him into the 2030s if he won, which is quite a scary thought. But anyway, um, he has... A possible opponent uh, who could be a sort of um, a unifying candidate for next year's um, uh, presidential election, right? And this is the mayor, the current mayor of Istanbul, a man by the name of Ekrem Imamoglu. Okay, so Ekrem Imamoglu was uh, elected mayor of Istanbul back in 2019. Now, he had to have two goes at it because, of course, when the first election happened, uh, Erdogan's AKP party said, oh, no, well, we don't think this was done fairly. They went back and they did it again and Imamoglu won hands down, right? So very fairly popular mayor, certainly amongst his supporters. And there, we know that the opposition, the main parties in the opposition have decided that they are going to pick a unity candidate, but we don't know who that unity candidate is. Now, it's thought that the reason, so, so the reason I'm giving you all this information is because this guy, the mayor, was sentenced to two years and seven months in prison last week. Right, so it seems a fairly obviously, uh, fairly obvious that it's politically motivated, shall we say. Um, he was 
banned from being involved in politics in the country as well. And this was for allegedly insulting public officials. Now, that, that insult that he levelled at those public officials was essentially calling them fools uh, for having overturned the decision around the first election when he became mayor in 2019, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's fairly obvious that Erdogan wants him out of the way. Can he appeal? Is there, does he have any other recourse? That is actually essential to this story because he's not going to spend any time in prison immediately. He's not going to go to prison and he's not going to be banned from being involved in politics until that appeals process is over. Now, the elections are next year. The hope from his point of view and from the opposition's point of view, perhaps, is that the appeals process will be dragged out. But I think that's something that we'll have to look at next year and see how quickly the appeals process might be sped up in this particular instance. Um, And the the ban from politics, was that a lifetime ban or just for the duration of of the uh, sentence that was given to him? I I think it's it's sentenced to two two years and seven months in prison along with a ban. Uh, So I think it was just for the duration of the two years and seven months as well. Um, And uh, yeah, that's what it was handed down. Yeah, so if, if the appeals process gets dragged out and if, say, he was elected president... Uh, does that give him some form of immunity from prosecution? That's a good question. I, I can't answer that 100%, Sean, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm sure, like, if it's like any a lot of other systems in, in uh, around the world, um, it might well do. I'd, so I'd put it to you another way. Uh, I'd say if Erdogan was in the same boat, he'd probably manufacture some sort of uh, immunity uh, for himself. So uh, <laughs> we'll see how it pans out. Yes. Right. Uh, Denmark, we're going to go to you next now, I suppose, as we all know, because of uh, the war in Ukraine, there's been a uh, a move towards uh, uh, Denmark ending its um, neutrality. Um, but the, the new government there have started that process with a fairly unpopular measure. They have. Uh, this is uh, Mette Friedrichsen, who's the Social Democrat uh, Prime Minister there. And she's decided that in order to make up the 2% of GDP that they want to increase on defence spending... Um, that she's going to take away a national holiday, right? They have 11 national holidays or bank holidays there in Denmark. And she wants to take away one that has been in place since 1686, right? It's called Ooh. the Store Bedegag. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it properly, but sure, look, look, let's give the Danish accent a go anyway. It's called the Great Prayer Day. So you can imagine who were first up to bat against this. Uh, and that was the church uh, who were f- particularly unhappy about it. They make one good point in, uh, around it in that um, not only is it a day of prayer and reflection, but it's also a day when an awful lot of people get their confirmation done or, uh, in, in, in that particular country. Um, so there's a lot of business that happens on that particular day, particularly in restaurants and the like. So they're not happy about that. Various other parties have swung in and said the same. The new right came in and said that it's associated with important traditions. The Red-Green Alliance basically said that it was, it was you know, going to affect workers and they were entitled to their day off. But she's, uh, she's not backing down. She's saying there's a war in Europe and we need to strengthen our defences and that will require everyone to contribute a little more. And she reckons that if everybody works an extra day, that that will contribute to the, uh, uh, to, to the overall um, money or production that's coming uh, out of the country and therefore they'll be able to pay for this defence budget. 
Yeah, of course, Denmark isn't neutral. They are members of NATO. That was uh, my mistake there before everybody texts in. Well, they probably have already uh, to correct me on that one. It was an unfortunate choice of day, though. I mean, they, I, did they not? Did she not have any kind of choices of other bank holidays? Good question. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not. I have to say, I'm not afraid to all of the bank holidays in Denmark, to be honest with you. But it does. Ta-ta, I have Jonathan. to say, <laughs> I have to say that you know, it's a, it being a religious holiday. You know, she probably knew that she was going to get where she was going to get some sort of um, criticism from. And she obviously thought that that was the, the, the best one to go for. So, um, yeah, that's what she's decided. And uh, we'll see if it goes through. Yeah. Right. Fiji, we're going to go to next. And it seems as if it, the country is in political deadlock right now. Well, actually, it's interesting that you say that. So the reason I brought this story in is because we spoke about it last week and I said that I would, we, you know, the bit that we do at the end, usually stuff that's coming up uh, mm. the next week. So very interesting because this is another one of these, our characters that, you know, pop up quite a bit. Um, Frank Biney Marama, okay, he's been in place since 2006. You might remember that he took over in a military coup in 2006 um, from the guy who was in place before who got in place from a military coup himself. So Fiji, like we have this image of it of being, you know, they all play sevens rugby and walk on the beach all day long. But it can be, you know, it can be fairly fraught, the politics there. And and they've had a lot of trouble since their independence in, from Britain in 1970, I think it was. So this particular election, I flagged it last week uh, that he was going to be under pressure. And sure enough, the two main parties both came out with 26 seats. So they had to go courting the smaller parties. And it, they eventually went to the SDLP, would you believe, the Social Democratic Liberal Party, who uh, supported, uh, whose um, constituency, shall we say, are indigenous Fijians. And they basically said, look, we're going to support whoever does the best thing or comes up with the best policies for indigenous Fijians. And they have decided that Frank Bainimarama and his party are no longer that party. And as of about three hours ago, they have decided to go with the others. And uh, Bainimarama is now gone after 16 years in power. Now, I should, oh. uh, I should qualify that by saying that Bainimarama did say that he might think twice before he ceded power. So this story might have uh, a little bit of a way to roll and he does have a history um, with the military uh, from 2006. Um, So he may not go gentle. Ah, so and when you say history with the military, that was a coup? Yeah, in 2006 is how he came to power. So, um, you know, know, watch this space is what I'm saying. Oh, gosh. Right, Senegal, we're going to go to, uh, lastly, and uh, this is a story about MPs uh, attacking a pregnant MP. Yes, this is in Senegal. Uh, It happened uh, on the 1st of December during a debate when a man by the name of Masata Sam slapped another MP by the name of Amy Nibi. Now, Amy Nibi uh, is pregnant and... um, I don't know. I, it it seemed to. I saw video footage of it, and it seemed to come out of nowhere. This guy Masata Sam was making a speech. She scoffed at him. He walked across the floor and hit her in the face. Now she wasn't taking it. Uh, she got up herself and picked up a chair and flung it at him. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know she wasn't going to take it lying down. At which point another person, another man, a colleague of Masata Sam, came over and uh, and, and kicked her apparently. So these two guys have now been detained and charged with voluntarily causing hurt. Now, I'm not 100% sure 
you know, if they'll do time or what will happen here. I think their lawyers are basically saying, you know, they've surely got parliamentary privilege. But I think slapping someone and kicking them probably exceeds that particular limit, uh, I would imagine. Um, so it's an interesting one because things are very tense in Senegal at the moment. President Macky Sall is another one of these people that we mentioned quite a bit, uh, is looking like he might go for a third term, which is, you know, the classic... They have the classic two-term limits there in, in, in this West African country and he looks like he wants to go again because, of course, he's the best ruler ever uh, and they can't do without him. Um, but that is causing major tension in, in Parliament and, and this is a manifestation of that. Uh, is the Senegal Parliament known for uh, being a bit fractious at times? Uh, I haven't seen anything from the Senegal Parliament like this before myself, I have to say. So, uh, no, uh, to be honest with you. Not that yeah. I know of anyway. Right, so I, I usually end this slot with you by saying what's coming up in the next week. I assume it's a bit quiet. It's extremely quiet. I think um, Macron might be in Iraq and that's about it. Or he's holding some, some I don't know, talking shop on Iraq or something like that. But besides that, it's very quiet. Except for Christmas Eve, of course, when Santa Claus is doing the rounds. And yeah, uh, that's very important, of course. That's the most very important imp- political event of next week. Absolutely. Jonathan, uh, thanks a million as ever. Thanks for all your contributions during the year and uh, happy Christmas to you and the family. Uh, Jonathan DeBurka Butler there. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.